This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Julia Joubert. Estrangement from family or friends can be one of the most isolating experiences, yet is a lot more common than people think. In a national survey, almost 30% of American adults reported cutting off contact with a family member, and one in 10 reported they had cut off contact with either a parent or a child. Yet, despite how common it is, people who are estranged from friends or family often experience profound feelings of grief, loneliness, and uncertainty, a very real lack of inner peace. In today's program, we will hear two first-hand experiences, one from American voiceover artist and comedian Tina Marie, an adult child estranged from her father, and another from Seattle-based podcaster and estrangement and reconciliation coach Creed Revere, who was once estranged from her two daughters. We'll also be turning to Dr. Aileen Fullchange, a licensed psychologist and speaker, for her professional thoughts and guidance on the matter. In part one of today's Peace Talks Radio episode, correspondent Julia Joubert will explore the processes by which people can become estranged, the types of estrangement people might experience, how our guests managed and continue to manage their emotions, and how communication played a role during this time of crisis. Later in the hour in part two, we'll hear from our guests about the winding journey that is reconciliation, how estrangement has affected other aspects of their lives, as well as personal and expert resources for others on their own estrangement journey. But we'll begin today's conversation with Dr. Aileen Fullchange to ask what types of estrangement do people experience? What does estrangement look like? And who gets to decide that it's even happening? Most of the time when people in the mainstream society talk about estrangement, we're talking about familial estrangement. And that's the type of estrangement that's also most researched. And within familial estrangement, there's sort of subtypes. There's parents estranging from their children, children estranging from parents and sibling estrangement. But it's also important to talk about estrangement more broadly. There's estrangement in the context of friendships. Um, and then there's also just even more broadly, voluntary versus involuntary estrangement. I'd like to explore there what you've just described, involuntary versus voluntary estrangement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the pathways to estrangement are obviously different. Everyone is voluntary versus involuntary, but also the impact of estrangement can be very different. When it's voluntary, when the person is sort of in charge of or has some say about the status of the relationship, there is some power there and more perhaps control, if you will. And that can be, that can feel less jarring and less acutely hurtful versus when it's involuntary. When there's involuntary estrangement, sometimes the person isn't even aware that there was estrangement until some significant event happens. A holiday comes around, a birthday comes around, and the person you know is used to wishing them being wished happy birthday or whatever, and that doesn't happen. And then that's sort of the first clue. And so it can be more jarring and um, more disorienting. It can also lead to more kind of more volatile emotions Hmm. around the estrangement process. Hmm. What are some of the most common ways that people navigate these estranged relationships? And then how do these particular behaviors serve the individuals involved? So first, I think it's important to clarify that estrangement happens along a continuum. I know in the United States where I'm at, a lot of people tend to think about either you're estranged or you're not, but 
in reality, there's a continuum of distancing. So estrangement could look like, for example, a decrease in uh, communication quality or a decrease in communication quantity. It could look like a physical distance where, say, a child decides, I'm going to move to another state when I was living next door to my parents. It could look like a change in just the emotional quality of the interactions where before there was maybe more positive emotion and now there's more negative emotion. Tina Marie is an American voiceover artist, comedian, musician, and performer currently based in Berlin. Growing up, Tina and her father had always had a very strained relationship. And then, in 2017, when she was 29 years old, Tina ceased all contact with her father after her parents separated. They remain estranged today. My father is deeply mentally ill. He suffered from very extreme anxiety and depression my entire life. And he would not handle it, could not handle it, wouldn't seek help. And so this meant that he was very emotionally abusive to everyone in our family, basically starting from the second that I came out the womb. And I have like very vivid memories, even from being so tiny, like five and six years old and just him screaming at me and me being like, I wish this man wasn't my dad. I wish I had another dad. I don't want this dad. I'd rather have no dad than this dad. Mm -hmm. And then as I got older, things just sort of got progressively worse. Um, I think there are a lot of cultural elements into that because I was the oldest. Cultural how? Um, So my family's Portuguese. So there's a lot of, there's a lot tied up in like the father and the firstborn and and there's just there's some cultural pressure especially I think on the on the eldest child or at least that's how I felt um Mm -hmm. and also seeing sort of the difference in how I was treated versus how my sister was treated my sister also has an incredibly strained relationship with with our father but I think she had it in some ways a little bit easier than I did because she was also more academically inclined in the ways that he wanted me to be and I wasn't Mm -hmm. I was like a language arts and an artsy creative child and he wanted me to be like a scientist Mm -hmm. so when I so the physical distance I think really helped so when I started university I could physically pull back And then when I moved abroad for grad school, it was yet another step further. And then I just continued to live abroad after grad school. And so when they separated, I was living in Afghanistan. So I was about as far as I could physically be away from him. And once he moved out of the house, there was no need for me to have any more contact with him. So I just said, cool, I'm done. I never had like a final conversation with him. I never said, this is what I'm doing. Once he was out of the house, I blocked him on everything and and that was it. And I just sort of let that chip sail. I can imagine it to still be quite a difficult thing to to do. Mm-hmm. Blocking someone in, in any regard feels like a very, a very purposeful and very aggressive act somehow, yeah. sometimes. What did that feel like for you? Yeah, I think if blocking people feels like an aggressive act, it kind of feels like an aggression towards them. And I think I saw it as the other way around. Mm-hmm. I saw it as aggressively protecting myself. And for the first time, having the ability and the life circumstance where that was an option. You know, when my parents were together, I couldn't aggressively protect myself. And then so when when he didn't have to be in my life anymore, I think it was, sure, it was an aggressive act, but it was one that I did for me. When I posed the question of the cultural and contextual side of estrangement to Dr. Full Change, she expressed that Tina's experience is actually one shared by many people. Yeah, so what Tina experienced is very, very common. 
one of the things that does sort of cut across all cultures is the purpose of estrangement. So estrangement is useful, so to speak, to alleviate some sort of distress that the relationship causes. So that's its primary function. And what human being does not want to relieve distress, right? That's a universal human thing. And at the same time, there are definitely societal influences and cultural and contextual influences that affect the rates of estrangement and also who is more likely to experience estrangement. In very broad strokes, when we look at estrangement in more individualistic societies versus more collectivistic societies, which tends to be more Western societies versus more Eastern and more collectivistic societies, we see estrangement is more common in societies where individualism is stressed mm-hmm. or valued. So in the United States, for example, when we look at rates of estrangement, some studies are showing that within immediate family members, the rates are as high as almost 30% of folks who report some estrangement in their immediate family. And then when we extend beyond that, it's about half of people who, ex- who say they are estranged from any family member, immediate or extended. So if you think about that statistic, it's a pretty normal thing. Most likely in the circle of people who we know, we know people who are estranged from their family members in some way or another. And at the same time, though, we have these cultural and societal influences that affect the perception of estrangement. For example, we see that estrangement happens more often with fathers, children estranging from their fathers versus mothers. And part of that is because, well, our society has generally valued a mother-child bond over the father-child bond. Or we see that rates of estrangement are higher for those who are part of the LGBTQ community. And that is rooted oftentimes in homophobia and sexism and the gender binary. So oftentimes when people experience distress or feelings of grief or loss around the estrangement, sometimes it is around the estrangement, but oftentimes it's also around that secondary response that other people are having to that person deciding on that estranged, the status of their relationship being estranged. And I think that's important. Like we have a little bit of a, almost like a mismatch here. We have what actually happens and we have what society is saying should happen. And they're oftentimes different. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where it's important for folks to know what the true narrative is around estrangement, that it's not actually uncommon there are very valid reasons for it and that there are groups uh, especially nowadays with so many resources being available online there are groups where people can be in community with other people who are going through a similar process whether you're someone who has decided to estrange from someone else or someone who is on the receiving end of estrangement. I asked Tina about how culture played a role in the secondary response that other people had to her decision of estranging herself from her father. So I definitely did receive pushback um, because, again, in Portuguese culture, there's just this there's a lot of toxic masculinity bound up in Portuguese culture and just this idea of like the man and but he's your father. I unfortunately got pushback from, I think, the aunt that I was closest to, who's my father's sister. And when my sister and I were up at Christmas, we went over to go say hi to her and she basically surprised us with our father. Like we walked in and he was there and we were like, absolutely not. Did you try and speak to her about that behavior? Not really. It's, we don't really have that kind of relationship. Okay. The most surprising place that I got pushback from was my mom. 
mm-hmm. which I was not expecting because also she was there for the entirety of my childhood. And, you know, my mom spent a lot of her life doing her absolute best to protect me and my sister from our father. And so when they divorced, I think I thought that she would, of course, she would understand. But I think she was getting a lot of pushback from the rest of the family and from, like, my grandfather. And I think she also kind of felt like, well, maybe just because they're divorced doesn't mean that we can't have a relationship with him. And so she'd be like, you should call your dad. You should call your dad. And I was like, absolutely not. And I had to sit down with myself and remind myself that my mother is as much a victim of my father as I am and as my sister is. And that that was not coming from her. That was coming from the pressure that she was getting from the rest of the family and possibly maybe her own feelings around the divorce. I never really asked. But like eventually my sister and I were like, we will not. You have to stop. Mm -hmm. And she did. Mm -hmm. For anyone who might be experiencing something similar in the pushback from the people that they love. Do you have any advice for how to navigate those conversations? When it came to like actually having those conversations, I think I learned very quickly not to try to explain myself, but just to be like, I will not. Thanks for checking in. I appreciate your concern, but I'm not willing to have a relationship with him at this time. As soon as you start providing a reason, people start trying to counter it or people start trying to logic your way out of it. So I think I learned very quickly, give them absolutely nothing. As soon as you give people anything, they uh, will tug on all those strings. Dr. Fulchange shared that while the way Tina handled that conflict must have been very difficult, to her, it also sounded very healthy. Dr. Fulchange went on to express that the nonviolent communication framework of observations, feelings, needs, and requests is helpful in any process of distress, but especially in estrangement. Oftentimes, the person who's experiencing that estrangement, they will get sort of more distress from other people around them. But to be able to use that NVC framework and recognize, okay, well, I guess maybe my aunt is feeling anger. Maybe my aunt is feeling fearful. And maybe it's because of what she's telling herself about her own family. And maybe she needs some stability. And how can I meet that need? Where's the bandwidth that I have to meet that need? That can be really helpful. One of the things I think that's important to recognize is that estrangement is not something that just happens. And then it's just a permanent state. It is something that wavers. For most people, there are actually multiple cycles of estrangement and reconciliation that happen over the the lifespan of that relationship. And sometimes providing that education can alleviate other people's distress about it. I'd like to turn now to the perspective of an estrangee. While her position and experience can, of course, not be compared to that of Tina's father, Creed Revere is a formerly estranged mom of two adult children. She is also a formerly estranged adult child, experiencing both sides of the parent-adult-child fence. In January of 2016, Creed realized that something was amiss when she hadn't heard from her daughters for a long while. It was about a week or two before I, I realized something was amiss and something was not right. I wasn't ever a parent that was in constant contact with my children. So a couple times a week, we would, you know, send a text back and forth or there's something along those lines, a phone call. And about a week or two went by and I I realized, hmm, I haven't heard from them. And so I reached out, texted, no return text. 
I called, no return phone call. And then I got on social media and realized I had been blocked from everything on social media. And that is when I had the realization of what was actually happening. I didn't know at the time that that was estrangement. I had never heard the word estrangement or not to my recollection. And all I knew was that I was not able to reach my children. And I went into absolute panic. Whole host of emotions come up with that. Never experienced anything like that in my life. And when I had the realization that this is my kid's do not want to talk to me. I don't have any other children, so they were my only children. It really, really devastated me. In that period of time, I was estranged from my one daughter for about a year and the other daughter for about two years. And during those that one and two year time period, I was in contact minimally during that time period, and most of it was by email and not phone calls for the most part. And it was very nasty emails (laughs) was basically what I was, the communication I was getting back. That was my definition of it um, from my girls. So it was, and so I would receive an email and then I would back completely off because I was just so hurt from that kind of thing. So it wasn't a complete and total cut off, um, but it was certainly not anything healthy or resembling what we had had in the past. Did it come as a surprise to you that you went from one week where you're like, I haven't heard much from them, to realizing that you were blocked? I was completely surprised at that moment in time. Looking back, I absolutely see that there were signs that that were leading up to that. But in the moment, I thought, what on earth has happened? I I just was completely blindsided. That's how it felt to me. You've expressed panic. What What other feelings did you have at that time? Looking back now, I really feel like I was going through a lot of the similar things you go through in any grief process. In the beginning, I was very angry, very, very angry. Why, why won't they talk to me? Why I don't understand what is happening. Um, I was so unbelievably frustrated. And I'm the type of person who gets a lot of meaning out of life when I can make sense of things and may, and understand. I may not agree with it or like it or those types of things, but I, I couldn't make heads or tails out of this. I often describe it as being in a, in a room, windowless room, the door is shut and the light is off and it's completely black and you don't know which end is up, just complete disorientation. And then that quickly went into shame. Oh my gosh. What does this mean if you're if you're a mother and your children want nothing to do with you? I must be a horrible, horrible person that my children don't want to talk to me. You know, I've always thought in my life, I know that my parents will one day leave me, they will pass away and move on, and we have relationships and people leave our lives, friendships and things like that. But I always thought my children were the constant that my children would always be in my life. And so when they exited by choice, that just destroyed the foundation of everything that I thought I knew in the world. So it was really life-altering for me. 
and it was it was a it was hard it was very difficult to come out of that and i even had some of that even after we reconciled i mean in the guilt and things like that so there's lots of emotions tied up in that hmm. i am curious about how you navigated those emotions i think especially the earlier ones of anger and frustration where those are complex and also very conflict-driven feelings. Uh-huh. How did you manage those feelings in that time? Looking back, do you feel you kind of did everything the way that you wanted to do or were there some learnings through the process? Oh, no, I, <laughs> I did not respond in, in healthy ways at all. It was completely that primal self-preservation, pointing the finger at them, this was all their fault, that kind of thing. Um, what got me through all of that and being able to navigate moving through it instead of getting stuck in those feelings was really my therapist. I, I was in therapy. Um, so I was in therapy at the time the estrangement occurred, but for different reasons. And then when the estrangement occurred, then I shifted gears and started focusing on the estrangement piece and navigating that experience through therapy. There wasn't a tip or a trick or a tool that she gave me. It was really her sitting with me and allowing me to have the feelings that I was having without shaming me. She told me I was human. These were natural feelings that I was feeling and just allowed them to exist. You know, I think that we as human beings, I know that the few friends I had at the time were really quick to want to come in and due to some of their own uncomfortableness, want, wanting me to stop the, the big feelings I was having, right? They also wanted to protect me and help me to feel better. They wanted me to feel better and things like that. But it wasn't super helpful because they were telling me to not be so angry and all of these things. And I was like, but I don't, I, this is such a huge emotion. I've, I have to feel this. And I was able to do that safely in the, in the therapy room. Being able to take the space to feel her huge emotions was essential for Creed. Dr. Fullchange adds that these are especially tough to navigate when as a result of involuntary estrangement. Estrangement, no matter how you look at it, is there's a loss. And there is also sometimes something to be gained, but there is always something also that is lost. And when we talk about loss, we also talk about grief. And we know from the grief research that there's not really any one right way to grieve, nor is there one right emotion to experience. You can really experience the entire range of emotions, Mm. ranging from anger and sadness to shame, to denial, and to acceptance. With both voluntary and involuntary estrangement, there can be that whole range of emotions. But oftentimes what I notice with involuntary estrangement, and especially when it's involuntary estrangement that a parent is experiencing, so a child has estranged and the parent finds out somehow later on, there often is a lot more shame associated with it. And especially when it's mothers who are the estrangees. And there's a lot of sort of societal and contextual factors that are related to that. But the first thing I want to do is just normalize that whatever feelings one does experience in the process of estrangement, it's probably normal. Mm -hmm. When you are feeling these societal pressures, you are also feeling these internal pressures of should I, shouldn't I? Am I being as empathetic as I can be? Have I given as many chances as I can? You know, have I have I tried every, exhausted every avenue to find a way to make this work? And if not, 
how do I go from there? Is it okay to just kind of disappear? Does anybody owe anyone a conversation? Yeah, um, I think these are really good questions. I think the first thing is to make sure that you have a counter narrative that is rooted in, in truth. So the societal narrative might be, you got to reconcile, you got to reconcile, you got to, you know, that's your father, you only have one father. But in reality, like I mentioned, about half of people in the United States are estranged from some family member or another, and about 30% of folks are estranged from an immediate family member. So to say, or to have that sort of sense of urgency around reconciliation, it's actually not rooted in reality. And a lot of these societal narratives are rooted in things that are untrue. So oftentimes estrangement has a lot of benefits. Yes, it can be difficult. There's loss, but also there's a lot to be gained. I've worked with so many clients who once they made the decision to have some amount of estrangement found a lot of relief. Their symptoms of depression and anxiety alleviated. They were able to be much more functional on a day-to-day basis. And that doesn't work for everybody, but for many people, it does work. Mm -hmm. And not to say that that would work forever, right? That's another thing is you may have tried repeatedly and felt, oh gosh, well, I've exhausted all possibilities. And that's true. You may have exhausted all possibilities for right now. And that doesn't mean that later on down the line, you don't change your mind. And you also might maintain the status quo of estrangement. When someone is experiencing estrangement, be they, as you have said, the estranged or the estrangee, you've said, slow down, pause, feel the feelings, experience them. You mentioned as well, kind of having that counter narrative be a part of that as well. Look at what is true and what is not true. These things, we're saying them, but in reality, they're they're incredibly difficult, difficult things to do. These are crucial components to making whatever decision you make feel like the right one for you. But how do we how do we do that? How do we recognize, for example, that I have actually ended up in an echo chamber because it makes me feel good, but it's not necessarily productive for this complicated situation that I find myself in? Yeah. Do you have any any steps we can take to recognizing if we are in that position and how to change that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the first things that I will often recommend to folks who I work with is to name the values in which you want to live from. So for some people, family is a really significant value or harmony is a really significant value or communities is very a very significant value. Um, For other people, autonomy is a really significant value, right? So I think if you recognize you're in an echo chamber, there's already quite a bit of self-awareness around what one's values might be that leads you to recognize that. But that might be sort of one of the first steps also is what, what are the values that you want to guide your life? And then can you operate from those values? Can you ground in those values, especially in the moments where your emotions might be more volatile. And then that might also drive you to find the people who will align with the values that you have. That's Dr. Aileen Fullchange, a licensed psychologist with our correspondent, Julia Joubert. 
Julia will have much more with all of our guests in part two of this Peace Talks radio program on estrangement in families and friendships. After a break here, we'll hear from our guests about the winding journey that is reconciliation, how estrangements affected other aspects of their lives, as well as personal and expert resources for others on their own estrangement journey. Peace Talks Radio is a production of the nonprofit media organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated, headquartered in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and originally founded in cooperation with KUNM at the University of New Mexico. You can look for us online with all of our programs dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. For audio, photos, transcripts, and other resources on this topic. Stay with us more on today's episode about estrangement after this short break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with correspondent Julia Joubert. And right now we'll continue with Julia's exploration in part two on estrangement. It can be a real upset to inner peace. We previously heard from Tina Marie, an adult child estranged from her father, and Creed Revere, a mother once estranged from her two daughters. In our part one, our guests shared their personal stories of estrangement, the role that their cultural backgrounds played, and how they managed their own and others' feelings of anger, fear, and shame. We also heard from Dr. Aileen Fullchange, a licensed psychologist and speaker who looked to normalize estrangement within relationships. She explained that while estrangement can be devastating, it can sometimes also be necessary. It is also not always forever. So now as we head into part two on this topic, we explore the complexities of reconciliation, how estrangement has affected other aspects of our guests' lives, as well as personal and expert resources shared for others on their own estrangement journey. And we begin now with hearing again from Creed Revere, where correspondent Julia Joubert looks to better understand the months and years that followed Creed's involuntary estrangement from her two adult daughters, And what did the process of reconciliation actually look like? You and your daughters have since reconnected. Correct. What was that process of reestablishing contact with your daughters like? And if you don't mind me asking in terms of specificities as well, who sent the first text? Who reached out? Were you very 
particular about the language you used and the suggestions you made for meeting places and those kinds of things? That's a great, great question. Um, And I, for the life of me, I think that due to the trauma that I was in as a result of the estrangement, I don't remember the very specific on who. I think it was my daughter who reached out and asked me to lunch my, my one daughter. Um, I don't recall I, me having made that phone call, I could be mistaken. (laughs) This was like four months in after the official quote unquote official estrangement. And at that point in time, I was so scared. I remember the feeling of, I don't know what to say. I don't know what not to say. I don't, it was kind of like a, I felt like I was in quicksand that had stopped moving for a moment and I, but I couldn't go forward. I couldn't go back. I didn't right or left. I just was frozen right there. And we met for lunch. I remember driving and parking and thinking, I have to go home. I can't do this. I don't know what I, I don't know what to do. Like, I mean, I felt like I was meeting someone for the very first time almost I just didn't know how to interact with this child of mine that I had known her entire life it was it was it was a very bizarre feeling um that point in time I was crying all the time and so I was trying my best to quote-unquote keep it together during that conversation and it was it was it was difficult it was very difficult I mean she sat very stoic and not emotional that I could see from my perspective. Yeah, it was a it was a very very challenging hour that we spent together. How did you leave that hour together? I left feeling better than I did going into meeting her. I remember feeling like I could breathe again. Like it like I don't know where this is going to go. I don't know how this is going to play out, but I no longer feel hopeless. How many years has it been since you have reconnected with them and and reestablished your relationship? Uh, Well, we're working on, what is it, five and six years now. Okay. And what was that process like for you? You've mentioned that initial lunch. What did it look like after that? How were you with each other? What was your approach to it? And would you be able to walk us through kind of the months that followed? Yeah. During that time, it was... I felt like I was walking on eggshells. I didn't know. I, I was very mindful. And when I say mindful, I was I was mindful to really back off from my normal way of being with people. I was very hesitant to make comments about things, to fully engage in conversation because I was, I don't want to say the wrong thing that's going to land me back in estrangement. It was... It was it was uneasy. I, I remember feeling very tired after we would have any sort of contact because I was just so mentally ex- exhausted from trying to manage my words and really think about what I was saying and how I was saying it. So you then have this period of too scared to say anything. Was there a point where you expressed that to your daughter? Not really. Okay. <laughs> um, because... When we, the three of us all, you know, both of them reconciled with me individually, we were reconciled about four and five years. 
before we ever sat down to talk about the estrangement. We never had a conversation about anything related to the estrangement after we reconciled until that one conversation. And that came about because my youngest daughter knew of the podcast that I had and she listened to the podcast and she's the one that initiated. She said, I think we, I think the three of us need to sit down and talk because I think there's been some mis, miscommunication. So when you say reconciled, forgive me, for, to me, reconciliation looks like the three of us sit down and we have this conversation and we talk about it. <sighs> what does reconciliation look like if you have not spoken about the elephant in the room? Yeah. Reconciliation, by and large, for most people who are formally estranged and then become reconciled, is just that we are back in each other's lives. It does not mean, by and large, most times those conversations never happen. Okay. And how did the conversation go when the three of you did eventually, four and five years later, actually get to sit down and talk? Yeah, that was another one of those I was driving <laughs> and thought, I have to turn around and go home. I can't do this. This is, I thought, they're absolutely going to throw me under the bus and run over me. Like, I just thought I was in for the worst of the worst of the worst. So I arrived, and we were at one, one daughter's house, and I just listened. And each one of them shared what they needed to share with me. And I made apologies where I needed to make apologies, where they asked for apologies. I made apologies and I meant, I meant it. It wasn't just lip service. Mm. Um, because at this point too, I had already been working with different support groups. I was a facilitator for a support group. So I was coming at it from a very different perspective, I think, um, although it was deeply personal. Mm. And that was about an hour and a half and then I immediately went to my therapist. I had an appointment with my therapist directly after that meeting. And it was so eye-opening to me because all the reasons that I thought the estrangement occurred, all the things I had built up in my head, and it was I was completely off base. Mm. Did you take an opportunity to share your experience with your daughters? No. What was your reason for not doing that? It was an act of choice. It didn't come from a place of I'm the parent and I just need to support. It came from they need to tell their side of the story and now is not the time for me to tell mine. That is exactly what my therapist provided for me and I know how healing that was for me and I wanted to be able to extend that to my children. I wanted to get Dr. Full Change's perspective on this idea of the fear that arises when lines of communication open up again. The fear that Creed had about saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, and potentially closing the door forever. How do we manage communication in this incredibly unstable time? Yeah, so as a tool, or as a framework, I think the NVC framework is really helpful. And another sort of add-on to that is making sure that there is space held for each party, but not simultaneously. So sometimes when in the beginning stages of reconciliation, each party comes in and they are full of all of these emotions and thoughts and they just want to say, hey, this is what's going on. Right? Um, and that can be really overwhelming. And it can actually even be triggering because sometimes estrangement has happened because there isn't actually enough space held for one person or both people. 
So to be able to go into that NBC framework and for one person to say, okay, I'm going to hold space for you. And I'm going to really put on my empathic abilities here and be validating and be compassionate. And I'm going to do this until you feel like I hear you. And then let's take turns. I'm describing this like it's easy or something. And no, it's none of this. Is. <laughs> I mean, for some folks who I work with, this process of reconciliation takes many months. Sometimes it takes years. There's even entire specialties of therapy around reconciliation. But this is perhaps just a first step. Returning to the core values that Dr. Fullchange mentioned in part one of this program. For Creed, family is a really significant value. And reconciliation was the desired next step. For Tina, whose relationship with her abusive father was always strained, her core value was peace and harmony within self. So maintaining estrangement is her way of upholding those values. I think a lot of it was also just trying to like disentangle myself from this idea of like what do we owe our parents because I think in at least in American culture and also especially in Portuguese culture there's this idea that like as a child you owe your parents something like they brought you into this world you owe them a certain amount of love a certain amount of respect and it's just been disentangling myself from that thought process you know as as much as I would love to wave my magic wand and and live in a world where I do have like a a father with whom I, I get on very well, that's just not, it's not possible in this world. And so I think a lot of the boundaries with myself have just been coming to terms with that and also grieving that. Because plenty of people have dads that they get along with and it's like, hurts to see. But it's also like, I don't get to have that, at least not with this person in this world, but there are also plenty of people throughout my life who have been father figures or who have taught me the things or provided the support that I wish I had received from my dad. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And, you know, I think the the next couple of decades are going to be really interesting. You know, my parents are getting older. What is going to happen when he, you know, starts potentially requiring care or winds up in the hospital? I'm not sure. I'm not like I think about that sometimes and I'm not I'm not sure how I will respond to that or whether I will feel then in that moment like I should go see him or feel like maybe I want to work towards reconciliation. At this moment in time, I can firmly say this person will never be in my life. But I also say that knowing that things are going to happen in the next couple of decades that might I don't know. I really don't know. Here is Dr. Fullchange to explore the complexities of reconciliation. I want to back up a little bit and talk about what even reconciliation means, because there's reconciliation of the relationship, but then I think there's also a process of reconciliation within the person. And as a set, well, certainly in American society, but in many societies, we are not actually taught how to reconcile. And there's very broad historical reasons for that, as well as interpersonal reasons. Certainly in my own family, we weren't taught reconciliation. And I can trace that back to not just the interpersonal or lack of interpersonal skills that my parents and grandparents and so on, but I can trace that all the way back to the history of colonization. And here in the United States, similarly, there's a long history of of colonization and lack of repair, lack of reconciliation. So I want to really normalize that, you know, if one is not raised in a way that has modeled reconciliation, 
either in our families or societally, then of course we are not going to be equipped, nor are the other people who are we are estranged from going to be equipped with how to reconcile. So I want to really slow down and talk more about reconciliation within oneself before trying to reconcile with another person. Mm-hmm. When we look at the research on compassion and empathy, we actually find that it's much more difficult to show and feel compassion and empathy toward another person without first showing compassion and empathy toward oneself. So that's the first step is just to slow down and allow for space and time for the person who is experiencing that estrangement to actually recognize what are these feelings that I'm feeling? What are they coming from? And perhaps they're coming from this long personal history that I have with this person, or perhaps there's larger societal and historical context also. And to really have a felt sense of, gosh, I make sense to me and I accept me and where I'm feeling, whether that is a sense of sadness and grief, or oftentimes a lot of anger. And that one, I think, especially the angry feelings, I think are a bit harder for a lot of folks to sit with. We're not a society that says, hey, let's sit in feelings or let's sit in anger, especially. But I do think it's important to take time to do that. And then going forward, you know, then we can talk about what reconciliation might look like from a broader perspective. Just like estrangement is along a continuum, so is reconciliation along a continuum. So for a lot of folks who I work with might not term those interactions as reconciliation, but oftentimes there will be sort of a new version of the relationship. And so I think this this idea of reconciliation as returning back to however things were is unrealistic because there's been a long process, a long history that's often led to the estrangement Mm. and that doesn't just go away. And the process of reconciliation can often look like new realizations, new understandings, so that whatever new relationship is formed, however it forms, how whatever shape it takes, it is going to be and maybe should be different than how it was before. And if people choose not to reconcile, that is often viewed as a failure, a failure of a relationship, be it a friendship or a relationship with family because through our conversation, I'm understanding, you know, we're, we're trying to normalize this. So how would you advise somebody experiencing that feeling of, of shame and failure? How would you advise them to kind of reframe that for themselves if, you know, at least for now, this is it? So oftentimes what happens in the work that I do with folks is as folks get healthier and healthier, their relationships with other people, whether it's family or friends, changes. And that's because oftentimes health begets health. So to think of a relationship ending as a failure is just inaccurate. Oftentimes it's often actually an indication of health. We, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know if you're gardening, you got to take out some of the plants in order to make room for the plants that you really want to grow and thrive and flourish. And it's very similar in that sometimes in order to make room for healthy relationships to to grow and flourish, we do have to limit the unhealthy relationships. And that is a success for a lot of folks, even just setting a boundary and being able to say, you know, this isn't what I want. That's a success. That's huge. So I would encourage folks to reframe things in that way. And also to find people who are able to reframe uh, the narrative in that way and to support or reinforce the reframe. Previously, Tina Marie, the adult child estranged from her father, 
had expressed a very clear tool of boundary setting with people in her life who pushed back against her decision to cut ties with her father. She simply did not engage. She also maintained that in order to flourish, she had to, as Dr. Fullchange put it, take out some plants to make room for others. Tina has noticed that as a result of her experience with her father, she has needed to learn how to reframe for other relationships. I think, and this is something that like I've been working on in therapy, I think sort of as a result of living with my dad for as long as I did, I think my tendency has been to sort of just to move very quickly to end things. Sorry, I shouldn't have snapped. No, that's fine. To move like very quickly to end things. And like part of what my therapist has been getting me to do is be like, stop, take a breath, ground yourself, think about this. With friendships that have ended as an adult, especially in the last couple of years, it's been really hard because like for comfort and safety, I just want to be like, okay, I see that this is ending like boom done and now it's finished. And part of like having to unlearn that has been having to like sit with the discomfort of like, I don't like this. This doesn't feel safe. Like I don't like what is happening, but I have to like take a minute or take multiple minutes or days or weeks or months to like think about this and make sure that make sure that I'm making the decision from the right place, that the decision is coming from me and not coming from this protective response. So if I understand correctly, these friendships that have ended, you have given them the time, the space, the thought, the opportunity for second chances for discussion. Yes. To really formulate this idea for yourself of, okay, these are all the reasons why I need to now protect myself yeah. and I'm going to take this step. Yeah, I've tried. I've tried to do it that way. And yeah, sometimes the best thing you can do for yourself and for somebody else is to just let them go. Mm -hmm. And as much as that sucks, the limbo of a terrible or a toxic relationship is just a mm. really uncomfortable place to park yourself. To close, I turned to Tina Marie and Creed Revere for their personal advice and resources for navigating estrangement. I know that this sounds very cliche. <laughs> And very simplistic, but it really boils down to this for me, and that is you are human. You are going to experience emotions that maybe you've never experienced. You will have regrets. You will have guilt. You will also have love. It's important to begin to, to entertain a different perspective. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but when we can look at things through a different lens. It just puts a different spin on things. And then it gives us things that we can think about, right? And when we can look at it from that way, it tends to take the charge out of things. And when we can take the charge out of things, the emotions tend to begin to you know, the flame of emotions isn't so high. It begins to smolder a little bit. And we can begin to to see things a little differently. And then I think the next piece of advice I have is to stay curious and be patient. This is not a sprint in any stretch of the imagination. Most parents are so eager to come back into relationship with their children, oftentimes because they're retired or they have less day-to-day -day responsibilities. And I try to remind them the kids have, you know, they have a career and they have kids and they have a, all the things, the house to keep, you know, like all this, all this stuff, right? And so it, it takes them a little longer generally to come back. And once you've been hurt, it takes a little longer. 
to want to come back. Exercise some patience and develop some curiosity. So I'm trying to think about like memoirs about familial estrangement that I really enjoyed or about. And I found like I love memoirs as a genre. And I very often find myself with memoirs about like dysfunctional families or challenging relationships with your parents. So like I'm going through my Goodreads right now and it's um, like I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy or Gypsy Boy by Mikey Walsh, which is about growing up in a traveler community and then coming out as gay and basically having to run from his father. Mm-hmm. All About Love by Bell Hooks, just for a, a slightly different or healthier take on love and what love is supposed to look like. The Glass Castle by Jeanette Wall, which is about her growing up with like just really, really crazy parents. She has a like a very good relationship with her father, but there was also a point in her adult life where she was kind of estranged from them because she was struggling to make her own life outside of them. Do you know the thought that I just had? Yeah. Because I'm going I'm scrolling through my Goodreads as we're as we're speaking, and I there's just a lot of like cult books in there about breaking away from cults. All of these are narratives about breaking away from generally the male cult leaders in, a, in in one way or another. And I'm like, is that why I like these books? <laughs> is, there's, there's a lot of cult books on here, Julia. There's so many cult <laughs> memoirs. And a lot to learn, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that a lot of your references for, for tools on how to navigate this, be they memoirs or books on cults, um, <laughs> is that they provide you with some sort of um, a real-life blueprint to potentially yeah. be inspired by or, or follow. And I think that's something personally that I also gravitate towards because I struggle. And I think this process is so... It's so up and down. Yeah. It's so different day to day that sometimes you do just want to see how someone else has done it. Yeah. Give it a shot. Yeah. And see where it goes from there. Yeah. I think like a, a blueprint, if there were a blueprint for like dealing with this stuff, it would be so lovely. If it was like, here is step one and here is step two and here is step three. But like human relationships are so complicated and especially like the decision to remove yourself from a relationship that socially culturally we're taught is so important as parent child is I don't think it can follow a blueprint I think everybody's just sort of taking the steps that feel right and feel like they make sense and hoping we're moving on blind faith that we're moving away from something that we know is not working and hopefully moving towards something that that is going to be better that was our guest Tina Marie with some profound final thoughts human relationships are complicated especially when navigating estrangement And often we are simply moving gently and with empathy towards something that's going to be a bit better. You can find Tina's full interview as well as the rest of Julia's complete interviews with Creed and Dr. Fullchange at peacetalksradio.com. Peacetalksradio.com is where you'll find more detailed information about this program, upcoming programs, past programs dating all the way back to 2002. You can find photos of our guests, access to transcripts that you can share, You can stream or download audio of the programs themselves, find links to other resources on the topic, and it's all free for everyone to use online at peacetalksradio.com. But obviously, it's not free to produce it and post it and maintain it on our website. So there's also a donate button on the website, peacetalksradio.com, for you to help. Most of our operating budget is supported by donations from people just like you. While a bit comes from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund, 
Some other notes to keep in mind that you can also download all episodes of Peace Talks Radio from Apple Podcasts and many other podcast platforms. And you can write us, too, with your comments and questions on any episode, anytime. Email us at info at peacetalksradio.com. That's info at peacetalksradio.com. We'd love to hear your questions and comments and encouragement. For Julio Joubert, for all of our correspondents, and for co-founder Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Why let this world just weigh on your shoulders? Pick it up, push it off, before you let yourself get colder. Just look into the eyes, the good eyes of a child. I see that love rounds like a river and flow for a thousand miles. Give me some peace, love, happiness. Peace, love, happiness. Peace, love, happiness. Come on, your feet on the earth you better love it while it's still here spinning i got no time to worry about troubles on men's givings need to let it flow let yourself go cause if you're hating then you sure ain't living give me some peace love happiness Peace, love, happiness. All right now, peace, love, happiness.